makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power, power. Betu washte chante washte na page use up yellow le unkipiki he washtelo le ampetu ki tanka na washtelo ola kota yellow. Greetings and good morning, good day, and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart, and the whole world is beautiful. This is First Forces Radio to send you greetings and strength from the East Gate of Turtle Island, where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. And I'm your host, T. Okasin, Ghost Horse. And this is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio now in its 29th year of broadcasting. And Liz Hill is its First Voices Radio's outstanding producer. And you can hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as firstvoicesindigenousradio.org for archiving. Well, I'd like to say that our first guest Manish Jain, spelled M-A-N-I-S-H, J-A-I-N, Manish Jain, is deeply committed to regenerating our diverse local knowledge systems and uh, cultural imaginations and intercultural dialogue. He also has helped thousands of young people escape from factory schooling and recover their dignity, self-worth, and livelihoods. And Manish has co-launched the Global Ecoversities Alliance with over 150 members in 40 countries and also also a senior advisor to the Economics of Happiness Network for Localization, and I'd like to introduce Manish Jain. And this is a recording I did a few days ago with Manish, and listen up, folks. It's very, very interesting, and thank you for listening to First Voices Radio. Thank you for joining us. Um, Manish, when I first heard of you and watched a, um, a video of you uh, speaking about unlearning, unlearning mm-hmm. was a very big topic when I was very young and in boarding school. And basically, they were teaching us to unlearn the tradition, the language, who we are as Native people here in Turtle Island or North America. I thought this is like stripping away something that was very vital. Now that I am this age, it seems that was impossible, that they could not strip away that core value of who we are as Native people. 
because it didn't have yeah. anything to do with what I just started this out with the heart. So I uh -huh. began to understand it. It was all a mental coding or a mental cloaking to hide whatever that heart was feeling. And I, I was very interested in your interview that you had a few months back. And it was about unlearning and offering models, perhaps, of what we need to do to unlearn. Colonizing is a part of it, but I, I think you're right that I agree it's much wider than decolonizing. And because a lot of the decolonization discourse also has been kind of put in a certain kind of box. And, you know, I often talk about, even with the decolonization discourse, I think, you know, I say, you know, people in America and Europe, uh, white people, they're more colonized than we are even. So, uh, and usually it's usually only referred to for people of color or for minorities or things. And actually the, the colonization that's happened the 500 years has actually devastated not only indigenous peoples, but also even, you know, diversity in, in the global North as well. So, so, and I think um, particularly the institutions that we've created now that have been created emerged in the last few hundred years are really, um, really devastating for everybody and we need to we need to look at that together so unlearning is actually it's a kind of um I, I would say it's kind of a trickster political term it doesn't seem so political but because people get really nervous around the word decolonization but it unravels you even more than decolonization kinds of conversations do it's almost like they've offered, once you're programmed, then the first thing that to slot in there is, is somewhat of a formula of once you learn what decolonization and colonization is, that formula offered to us is very binary, very, um, you know, to the extremes. So you have to be one or the other. You have to be a heretic and basically choose one or the other. So it sounds like a formula given to those who are in the midst of trying to decolonize themselves. So is that farther away from unlearning? You might have explained that, but is that further away? Because we're dealing with a, a formula that doesn't exist in, in a lot of native thought processes. It doesn't exist. Yeah. I think um, un, the, you're talking about unlearning as a formula or decolonization as a formula? Decolonization and colonization yeah. as a formula. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that is a, that, that has been very narrowed in its scope and the questions that Faces. And I, I really appreciate what you were saying earlier about the, the coming back to the heart or the spirit of things. That's the core. And so a lot of this, a lot of the decolonization and colonization, as, as you're, I think you're referring to, is kind of a mental construct again. And it, and it remains in that domain. You know, I was at a, uh, speaking at a conference last year with, with you know, uh, professors and graduate students in, in um, university in UK and uh, Again, it was like the way they were talking was just like from the head. There, there was no like coming back to heart and spirit to the whole thing. So it's become that kind of framing again. And I think there's people in the past, like uh, for me at least, very well-known people like Gandhi and Tagore, who had a very different kind of understanding of what even the freedom struggle would be. Or even people like my grandmother, you know, uh, my village grandmother, and so I think it is definitely coming back to the, the heart of things again and heart of who we really are. And that's part of at least how I see unlearning. Well, how do you feel about unlearning now? Why is it so essential that we 
understand what that means because there's a difference as we explained from decolonization to unlearning. Yeah. So I think that much of the, um, many of the kind of things, uh, the ways we are, we're taught to think and behave in the world come from, uh, in the modern world, come, come out of a certain kind of, you could say a sense of fear and scarcity and that is then that kind of drives everything we do, how we create, how, you know, so it's not even, you know, if that's, if that's the underpinnings, fear, scarcity, monoculture, you know, then, then everything that we create starts to reproduce itself. And that's what we see that many of the movements keep reproducing the dominant culture in, in, in certain ways or, or certain kinds of behaviors of that, um, ways of thought, uh, reproduce the kind of uh, divisiveness, the spirit of competition, greed, all of those things. So I think that those essential, you know, um, the, again, the essential to overcome this fear and scarcity and sense of separation is essential to actually reclaim our, our, our deeper imaginations, our cultural imaginations again, and our cultural confidences that it, in a way that is not reproducing, you know, the chest beating of the nation state or the, you know, the arrogance of global corporations or whatever, you know. So I think this is essential. And when you talk about the talking about a, maybe a myth of scarcity, do they need a language to feed that? I think you alluded to it somewhat that part of that solution, some people say may be the problem. But in this case, since we are revealing the layers of unlearning decolonization in a sense, you said the cultural imagination. Now, some yeah. people, some listeners would want to go with that and say, well, America is a culture. But when I think of that in a personal experience, I don't see Mickey Mouse and McDonald's as a culture. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think, I mean, our imagination of what is, of who we are, what's possible, how we relate to each other, What's a good life? Much of it has been dictated by, um, you know, some would say it's the American dream, but it's, you know, the American nightmare. And basically even, you know, most of the things that are being proposed are still within that frame. And somewhere inside us, you know, the idea of, of that being the promised land, you know, in India, you, you know, many people think that America is a promised land and that's where, you know, you'll get the ultimate say, uh, happiness and everything. And, and but it was very funny, as you, you probably know, that Bhutan a few years ago kind of punctured that a little bit with the gross national happiness thing, saying, you know, America has all the money and all the power and all the military and, and everything and all the science, but, but the people aren't really happy. So what's the point of the whole thing? So I think this kind of conversation is now... I feel is very much alive again, you know, like maybe uh, 10 years, 20 years ago, people accepted, but this idea of when we veer, what is the good life really? So every, the last 50 years, pretty much America set the definitions for that. And I think that is crumbling right now. And it's very exciting time because those, everything is open for again, uh, for, for shifting, for opening up, for uh, uh, negotiating, for creating, you know, you for know dreaming. Yes. It reminds me of some of the laws that are currently been reset somewhat by the Biden administration, that people think things are will return to normal. But in, in a harsh way, and maybe a, a 
simpleton way is that what we have done is unlearned and some things have been revealed these past four years about what truly this system is about. And you could see even now the riots in DC, I call them riots because, you know, they were just uh, people maybe invading space because they were non-native people. And so it wasn't so severe Right. But if they were people of color, people of culture, that would have been a more severe outcome, uh, so to speak. So what I'm saying is, is when when we are really thinking about this culture and why people think that we need to reset, I feel things have been revealed that we have really learned how to begin to unlearn. You see where I'm going with that? Yeah. Yeah. I hope that's the case. You know, I feel though, like, you know. The, at least in the Biden case right now, what I see is there's such a rush to get to some semblance of uh, normal and normal was not working for for the planet for sure. And for most Americans, I don't think it was really working very well. And even entering all those, this is what I'm saying, the failure of the cultural imagination. What Biden can do is to just re-enter into, you know, the existing relationships that were there institutionally. The imagination is requiring for a much deeper turning. You know, people have talking about it in the U.S., I think the healing that's required. But so maybe that's the first step. Uh, people will feel a little bit more confident. But I think that some other kind of uh, journey is needed for that kind of healing to really happen uh, the way it needs to happen in the U.S. And for for again the imagination, because you know things like the um, the United Nations and entering into the climate peace accord and all of this uh, are not are just not are, are not gonna are not gonna radically shift anything. Uh, and I think people are I hope are aware of that in the U.S. as well. And when you talk about unlearning and that inclusion of reimagining learning, reimagining education, so to speak. Is there a model that you talk about that we that might help listeners who are listening to this conversation begin to process what we're talking about? Yeah. Um, well, at least in our, you know, we have we've started a kind of ten years ago an alternative university. It's a hundred percent un, undeemed and unrecognized university by choice, and we have a a campaign in that called "Healing Ourselves from the Diploma Disease." So we don't believe in degrees and diplomas because, you know, this is another thing I just want as an aside uh, to Augustine was, you know, this this education system has played such a, a vicious role uh, to wipe out knowledge systems to knowledge holders, wisdom keepers by very, very simple act. So this education system labeled my grandmother as illiterate and uneducated. And fed me with the arrogance that I was, because I went to Harvard, I was the educated one, the most intelligent, the most wise, the most amazing person in the family. And I had to let go of all of that to actually, I started realizing that my, I felt really from my heart that my village grandmother was more intelligent and wise than my Harvard professors. And so I left all of that and came to unlearn with her actually. And so many things, you know, how we, the way I learned with unlearned with her was a very, you know, practical kind of thing. And I didn't even realize it was happening at that when it was going on, but you know, all kinds of things like, um, uh, so in India, for example, nowadays, and it's become around, I think fashionable around the world, zero waste, for example, 
So in India, people say, oh, you're talking about zero waste. You're bringing another American idea and impose it on us and, and be sustainable. I'm like, no, all of our grandmothers were like this. Yeah. They were the one original and they were doing it all the time and with all kinds of amazing, you know, uh, everyday things, you know, so simple thing, you know, like I never realized it. What do you do with your mango peels when you eat mangoes, Tio Kassan? Classic thing is either I mix them up to make bits, bits yeah. so that I can reconstitute them later. Maybe if I uh-huh. put them in a smoothie or something like that, that's what I yeah, do. With yeah. Yeah. yeah, great. So my grandmother used to dry the peels and then make a tasty vegetable with it later on when when the dry season was there. And that to even tell you one more step further, the mango seeds, there's a seed inside the mango seed. So they would dry, she would dry the mango seed and then crack it open. And there's another seed, which again, you can cook and, and eat. So nothing would go wasted. Uh, so simple kinds of things. And like my whole, my whole uh, uh, education taught me, no, you should be a good citizen and throw the trash in the garbage. And my grandmother mother would ask, why do we even need a garbage can? Why did we this for wastage and for garbage in our in our culture? So where why do you guys do this? You know, what's wrong with you people, you educated people? You know, so things like that would be some of the conversations. And it wasn't really even conversation. It would just be little little things I would be noticing. And, um, and, and so one of the things I talk a lot about, uh, what really struck me is the difference between knowing and being. So being is beyond, you know, the language and the being is it's, it's, it's just happening. Knowing we could learn to become very skillful and sophisticated in our language speaking, but our being doesn't usually match that. We're very, we become, you know, in Hindi, there's a word jaban. And I think you probably would have something. It means tongue, basically your word, your, your tongue, your word. And it means like, and that was for, for let's say non-written cultures, your word was was the most thing you're being and and so there was no need for contracts and all of that i because of my grandmother i've stopped signing any contracts i said you know people i think this may happen sometimes people bring a waiver agreement and saying oh you were interviewed so i said no no we I, we have a trust i take your word you won't abuse me and you abuse what i'm saying and and i'm giving you my word i won't uh, sue you that's kind of trust so this trust kind of systems really were part of part of what we what do I what I call the gift culture, the the real indigenous culture, you know? So one more thing just about that. In the university I was mentioning, there's three things which we really, I mean many things, but three that have come, keep coming up. Uh, money, unlearning around money, the money system, around love, and around death. These are three themes that we found very profound that uh, when we start to open a space to unravel what what this dominant system uh, has fed us around this, there's very powerful, powerful things that uh, a kind of a different kind of freedom emerges for, for us. It's very interesting. And, and you reminded me of, you know, as you are speaking, I'm writing here and mm-hmm. and it's like, why would I think that I'm going to forget that? It's part of unlearning that I really don't need writing yet. I will use it if necessary. And mm-hmm. and when I'm thinking about, wow, I'm using a standardized model. I'm using a, a default of knowing in the sense of information and knowledge so that people will get an answer for their questions that they may ask 
once they're listening to you and I, and like we're laying out a, a manual or instruction mm-hmm. booklet for them. This is how you do it. Now, is that part of the unlearning where we don't have to take, as you were mentioning your grandmother, where we don't have to take direct instructions that we can only show up? Yeah, I think there's a different way of learning that's going to be involved even in, in this process. And that's so, so a lot of the things, you know, I, I can give another example as you were mentioning writing. Um, this whole thing, you know, and academic, academia, we were told, you know, take notes, uh, you have to footnote everything. You have to quote the author. And when I immersed myself in, uh, you know, Rajasthan, where I live, is is predominantly still a, a very oral oral tradition. The oral traditions are very alive. And there's no such thing as copywriting. Everyone, the things flow. You can pick up anything. You can start it. You don't have to quote anybody. And you can change the story. You can add to the story. Um, it's a whole different kind of uh, tradition that that I had to unlearn because I was like, oh, first I used to get upset. That person hasn't cited me. They're saying what I said and they're quoting me. And then I realized there's a whole different code of how people relate. And this is this is from a deep understanding that language is a gift. It comes out of gift and it's, it's essential. It's nobody is the owner of language. And this whole tradition, this is, you know, uh, my spiritual tradition is um, is called Jainism, uh, and 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 it's a it's a very deep uh, philosophical inquiry into uh, nonviolent living. And so one of the things in that it's, it's, it points to is the roots of violence, you know. And one of the roots of violence is this illusion that we think we are owners of life, we're owners of words, we're owners of of property, of land, where silly construct that has been created in the mind and creates so much violence against each other, against the planet around this. So, so you know, when, so I think the invitation around is, is some of these things that we've created, really we need to, re, if we really want to enter into, again, reconnect with the sacred spaces and sacredness, is to, uh, we need to unlearn some of these things. And, uh, and so my grandmother has been, even I can give you one, one more little example. Um, this whole idea of, uh, when I say the word dung, what do you, what comes to your mind? Like, you know, yeah. like, yeah. So our whole conditioning, we think dung is dirty, dung is bad, wool dung is really bad, but actually wool dung and cow dung is really good for the land. We have a saying here, jetta pota vata rota. So wherever the cow dung is there, that is where you'll find your bread because the it's the cow dung is used in creating a natural fertilizer compost. It's used in making our ovens. It's used to, um, you know, uh, for cooking fuel and all of this. And we somehow have, again, you know, we do it. We even make soap out of cow dung here is one of my, it's, I call it an unlearning soap. So we do it with a lot of urban educated kids and they're like, oh, gross, gross, gross. We don't want to touch this thing. And then I, we make a, we mix it with clay and I tell them, you know, if you go to, if you go to uh, Napa Valley, they'll charge you $300 for this. And today I'm giving it to you for free. <laughs> and then they're like, okay, okay, we'll have it. Give us the facial with the cow dung soap and all that. <laughs> But, you know, um, I got so inspired, you know, and I've been working off and on on a little film. The way that humans, even every kind of dung from it is sacred in our culture. 
And you know, the horse dung, which is used for when you're making pottery, the every kind of animal there was in some way or other integrated into human life and for the well-being of of of, of life, you know. Um, so this kind of even deep. So even our things of what is dirty, what is clean, we need to really look very deeply at that. Could you? I'm going to have a lot of fun editing this um, for radio. <laughs> but but could could you just say the word dung for so I can replace it with dung dung? Okay, good dung. All this reminds me of what one does when they unlearn something that their behavior seems to change, and and that's what I'm feeling from you. When did you sense that you were at a point of unlearning, not just the sweet medicine that your grandmother provided with the seed, the mango seed, but for your yeah. own realization that you could actually change? I think it's still an ongoing process, you know, so I, uh, because, you know, it goes so deep. You know, I, I realized, you know, after my there one was my grandmother, you know, Gandhi left many seeds for us also, which I've had many experiences around. And I have an 18-year-old daughter. She's been unschooled. She's never gone to school. Or I mean, she's we've you know how you take kids to the zoo to see the caged animals. We've taken our daughter to see the caged students in schools. But other than that, she's never been in the school. And she was, you know, she was quite, you know, like uh, shocked when she found out. You know, these kids have to compete each against each other. What's wrong with them? You know, these people have to even ask permission to go to the toilet. You know, what kind of system is this? It's so uh, uh, inhumane and all of that. So, you know, but she's her her journey is a very different being. She has continued that tradition of my grandmother, at least in my wife and I's our lives to keep asking us to and, and little things she does or how she does things keeps, you know, I keep seeing how deeply the conditioning went for me. And uh, so it's a lifelong journey, I think. It reminds me of a story. Um, when I got to boarding school, you know, I didn't speak English. So what, what they did was they had to give a certain test, like they test our urine, you know, and see what color it was. And so we were told to go in this little cup, you know, and if we yeah. need to go even further, we need to go in this bowl of water to finish. We didn't. We were taught that you don't pollute what you put into your body. That we had to unlearn so that we fit the mold. So, you know, yeah. even today I look and it's like, okay, so if I if I turn myself into a non-organic person, then what follows is a technical person. I have to do everything by technical science, yeah. religion, government. You see where I'm going with that? Yeah, yeah. Planning. You have to do a certain kind of regimented planning, which we call, in our work, we call it two-dimensional planning, whereas our minds and our beings are three-dimensional all the time. And so we're trying to fit something that is far more richer and meaningful and layered into some kind of flat, you know, and, and people say that, you know, and sometimes there's that saying, you know, we confuse the map with the terrain. We're trained to confuse the map. We think the map is... It's not the same as the terrain. The terrain is something much more richer and alive, you know, and somehow this planning models that we've been, again, put into somehow. And then if we don't follow that, we're, we're hit on the head and we're said, oh, you're bad planners. Your people don't know how to plan. But but we've been doing, you know, we've been surviving for thousands of years. So we must know how to do something. If, if, uh, so it's interesting for sure. 
I'm tasting this in a sense that when I was in India, I was given, I think it was Ayurvedic root. And I tasted it and it was the most bitter taste I ever tasted in my life. And then I asked for water and they were waiting for this. They were like, that's a, you know, they were looking at me and they were almost smiling like you are. And then I took, (laughs) I took the water and it was so sweet I mean, this is, this is what we, that was medicine for me just to understand yeah. that it's not all what we think it is from the first impression that something that supposedly bad for us can be actually good for yeah. us. And in this, in yeah. this way, we are turning this around. Something is bad for us because we already know inherently, as you might say, what's good for us yeah. is to unlearn the educational process. And reconnect to our, you know, it was interesting. I said, there's a, um, uh, there's a very famous book that Gandhi wrote, his most famous and most radical book. And most of his followers don't like that book because it really raises some very fundamental things called Hinswaraj. So in Hinswaraj, he calls this, you know, modern system, he calls it a Shetani Sabyata, uh, the sh- satanic civilization, a satanic mm. system. And I was like, wow, that's really intense. That's a kind of and it was weird because he's a lawyer and he should be, he's very, you know, precise with his words. So I started thinking, why is that? And it was, you know, a system, uh, what I started to understand, any system that tries to disconnect us from our inner voice, from our intuition, from our conscious conscience, this is actually very, this is satanic, you know, that we have a divine connection, you know, with life and, and with all the divine energy the universe. And if there's a system that is trying to disconnect us from that and trying to tell us, don't trust into that. Don't have, don't, don't sense into that. Don't listen to that. There is something fundamental. And this is what kind of modern institutions have, have tried to do to us and to our people, you know, and they use these words, you know, superstitious all the time to label, label us and saying, you know, uh, you know, and so my grandmother also was the one who introduced me, reintroduced me when I was, 18, because I grew up in the U.S., um, to the ancestors, to the spirits. And uh, the first time I was like having a nervous like breakdown for a little while, I called up my father who was in the U.S. I'm like, you know, they're talking to the spirits and the ancestors. And my father is a Ph.D. in mechanical engineering. So I was like, yeah, this is all superstitious, right? This isn't and you don't really believe this. And he said, you know, I don't know. <laughs> he uh, just left. He's like, he's like, I believe it, and I don't know what, how to explain it to you. And that let me breathe then, and actually start to engage in a very different. Otherwise, the rational scientific mind had already labeled it and dismissed it. And uh, and so it was very profound that my grandmother invited me into this world again, uh, and let help me let go of all of those. And that again, that's a that the the, the labels of a superstition come out of a. A deeper fear, you know, a deeper fear of the wild, of the unknown. Uh, and so people like to um, label that to shut it down, you know. So I think that's another very rich area of unlearning for me is to uh, be able to engage into all of these fields that were called superstitious. Wow. So Manish, what I wanted to get one more in is about the, you know, you call for more or less of a deep dialogue far as the tools are concerned. And I want to offer this and see what you go with it. And you kind of mentioned yeah. it, alluded to it. It's called original in- intuition. It's different uh-huh. than original sin. So what is that original intuition? 
Huh. Um, you want to say a little more about it? Yes. <laughs> the original intuition that the yeah. educational process, what we've, what we come to default as their ideas of what intuition is, is like a gut feeling, um, all yeah. these things that we can refer to in this language. But yet when, yeah. when we talk about it, it's like our referral to the original instruction um, where we yeah. learned the medicine your grandmother had, that's intuition right there. Yeah. Understanding the consciousness of that seed. And now we put it into yeah. another language so they could understand the structure of yeah. what she was feeling. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, this, um, the, the original intuition for me at least starts with this understanding again, that we are not alone mm. in this planet. We human beings aren't the most intelligent beings in the planet. Human beings are not the most uh, are not the top of the the pecking order, in a sense. And uh, there are many other kinds of the, the 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 natural world. Other beings are alive and intelligent and hold consciousness, and they're communicating all the time. It's it's us who have forgotten to listen, or forgotten how to listen, and. Uh, I think for me that that understanding is where the the uh, and when we open ourselves again to listening, things flow and flow in a very different way. Uh, uh, a very, uh, you know, like um, it's very interesting. You know, like all kind of things. Like you know, when I meet artisans here, for example, I said, you know, you say, oh, you made this beautiful thing, this beautiful pot, or this beautiful structure, stone carving, or. And the first thing is, hey, we didn't make it. You know, the ego is let go. And now he said, what do you mean? It's a, the divine flow of energy is just flowing. We're a conduit for all of life. And I think this is where the intuition is, that we're this conduit and we're part of a much larger consciousness, much larger unfolding and evolutionary process that's happening in the planet, in the universe. So that's what I, I would at least refer to for me. I have to just share one other thing as I went to an amazing thing. I don't know if you know, in India right now, there's these huge farmer protests that are happening against the government who has put in a set of farm bills, which are very pro-corporate um, and the huge front. And I went to one and this was a lot of people from the uh, Sikh community, you know, the uh, Sikh wear turbans right. um, were there and hosting it. And they have an amazing uh, tradition called Langar which is, you know, uh, an act of service and care and abundance. It comes from the spirit of abundance. And, uh, you know, and they create these kitchens where anybody can come and eat. And so, um, but that spirit spilled over to all kinds of things. And, the, and then I was in this protest and, you know, people are offering to sitting and offering to polish protester shoes during the thing. They're offering milk with almonds to anybody who wants to drink. I mean, this was, I was thinking of it now and it, and it, I was like, the farmers are still, you know, small farmers are still, um, you know, who understand what you're, what you are talking about, you know, and, and when you understand that, then the abundance just flows, huh. you know, there's no fear left of it. It's an abundance that just can flow. And you see how that abundance is just feeding into each other and creating more abundance all the time. So I think that's the, the energy that is really um, is where we're, we need to reconnect. And that's what hopefully, you know, unlearning, we do one, we do one thing in our university. We do many things around unlearning, but one is around, uh, it's called the cycle yatra. So we invite people to come for a week on bicycles 
Nobody has any money in their hands, in their pockets. Nobody has any smartphones. Nobody has any um, uh, food with them. Nobody has any uh, medicine with them, like allopathic medicine. And nobody has any plan. So we have no idea where we're going, where we're going to end up, who we're going to meet, where we're going to sleep. And it's a total surrendering. I think surrendering is the word which is which is uh, something I would offer here. And to really exceed, and you see then, we were told the poor people, the villagers are poor, they don't have power. And once you surrender, you actually realize how much is still existing there. And, and you know, I think one of the things is shocking for people is like, you know, you go to a house of somebody, they don't look like they have food even for tomorrow. And how how freely and kind with huge amount of kindness and grace they feed you. And one wonders where does that come from? And the only place is that they are connected to the abundance of flow of life. And they understand really what it is. And so they can be very, you know, very generous and kind and everything, even if they, it appears they don't have anything. So I think that's the, that's where we're ultimately see how do we regenerate that. And because that's the, um, one thing we talk a lot about on our work is um, the what I call the exponential power of trust. Huh. And when we start to build relationships of trust, all things start to happen which you never thought are even possible. You could never even imagine. And so that uh, that I think is is the invitation, even for people who are activists and who are I just share that with that who are change agents because that's the that's it. And this, this farmer's protest, I called it the abundance revolution. And I said, this is the first real revolution of the last few hundred years because it comes from the spirit of abundance. It's driven by that abundance. And something when gets driven by that can really open up magic all over for, for all of us in the planet. Wow, that's so beautiful. Um, it's good to yeah. share time with you, Manish, finally. Yes, uh, thank you so much. It's been run. Shukriya in Hindi and Urdu we say uh, shukriya. Uh, it's, it's an honor always to what what is your uh, website or where can people go to find how to unlearn yeah uh, so I'll give you two one is uh, ours it's chikshantar.in uh, and the other one I would say is ecoversities so you can hear more the ecoversities alliance so we are actually um, really inviting people to create their own universities uh, and it's Villages who are doing that, it's forests, uh, uh, places where the forest is the guru, river universities, um, the mountain universities, the jail universities, uh, all kinds of things that uh, are beautiful things. And it's a, it's a part of the reimagining that even, you know, the, the university, if we start to re- reimagine, I felt, you know, I've been to many indigenous universities that were created, I think, in the 70s, things, many of them kind of got into a trap of trying to reproduce the the academia you were talking about. (laughs) So I think uh, this is a new kind of energy, which is trying to say that we don't even need the academia. We can, we have so much more and we can invite them. It's not that we're excluding them. We can invite them into a very different kind of flow of life. It's got an honor to talk to you and have you here on First Voices and thanks again, Manish Chain. Thank you so much. Yeah. Take care.
Okay. okay. Bye-bye. And that's Manish Jain. My name is Tiogas and Ghost Horse, by the way, host of First Voices Radio that you've been listening to here. Um, our next guest is Felipe Viveros, who's an independent researcher, strategist, and uh, consultant specializing in campaigning, program design, and fundraising. He's a co-writer of the In the Anthropocene, performed by Nick Mulvey. In the Anthropocene was one of the first voice radio's top listener favorites in 2019 and 20, and we interviewed him also. And we'll listen to this and I'd like you to join us for uh, anything that you hear. Take it in. Take it in. Listen very carefully to it because it is really about all of us. In the anthropocene, in 
stars come back and the rivers come back and the laughter come back and the medicines come back and the stories come back and the power come back and the oceans come back and the prayers come back and the coral come back and the soil come back and the tenderness come back hell the brother said we must remember the old way In music, there's ways of subtly jolting people. What do you think about why you all entered to writing this song? The song was originally born out of an invitation of trying to give a, a voice to the ocean. We were contacted. Uh, Nick was contacted by an organization working in Cornwall to protect the ocean uh, from sewage surface against switch and so, they were and then they've been in touch with this small uh, brewery that makes this very tasty beer in Cornwall they approached Nick and they say hey we have this project and we want to give a voice to the ocean what do you think about writing a song about that so then he came to me and he say shall we do it shall we not do it and I say yeah this is like a, because it's an invitation to really try to communicate and try to reach out to the mainstream when we talk about the voice of nature, when we talk about the voice of the ocean. That's why uh, how the, the, the song was born. Nick Malivi, Malevi? Malvi. And he is the singer-songwriter, as you might have yep. mentioned. And you are from somewhere. Yeah, I'm, I'm originally from Chile. And uh, I often describe myself as a fruit salad. So I am a mix of indigenous Mapuche, of indigenous from the north of Chile, of Italian, German, Swiss. So I, I got many uh, bloodlines in myself. So I kind of have devoted my life to, in one hand, trying to understand my indigenous roots and at the same time, yeah, try to build this bridge between white people's world and uh, capitalism and then the, the world of indigenous people that is very much about being in touch with the earth, listening to the earth. And so I am now currently based in the UK, in England, where I met Nick, and then I work around the world. You talked about Cornwall. That's in, in England. You talked, you said Nick got inspiration from that. And in the Anthropocene came out, what other songs were dear to you that we should be listening to here? One of the things that happened with the in the Anthropocene, so this was the first time in the first part of the song, we talk about the whale song. We talk about there is a thousand mile melody and it's calling through the ocean channels. We start to talk about the, the whales being able to sing this beautiful, also intelligible sort of song. So then the Anthropocene as, as, as a song was kind of like a, also like an invitation because currently we have so much despair and we have so much a sense of uh, hopelessness and the sense of like we, we are in the midst of this big global crisis, a uh, poly crisis. 
So because of the reception that people, the song was very well received, then we launched recently this new song called Begin Again in the middle of the pandemic. And the song was born also, also very much inspired by indigenous uh, wisdom. And on the second verse, it talks about um, ancient lines of memory. So really talks about the, the ley lines in Great Britain. And then I related to Anthropocene. Most people would have to look up Anthropocene. What does it mean? Because it's a scientific term, basically, dealing with a, a, an age. Trying to, what, what, what is Anthropocene? Because a lot of people may not understand it and not take it as um, an alarming um, message that, it, that it, it is. It's a subtle alarming message that, look, we, we are in a verge of waking up and we need to be awake because here's what's going on right now. And it probably is related, I'm thinking, to the uh, maybe the climate uh, crisis that supposedly people are, are, are trying to define. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I think just, just Anthropocene is an invitation to really step up our game as a species, as a race, as a kind of being. We have so many uh, intelligence, so many other beings, and yet the people, the, the humans, have changed dramatically the face of the earth. So this idea of really for us to realize, well, human beings, we have both the ability to restore, to flourish with the earth, to heal uh, with the earth, to really enjoy, to really share, to celebrate themselves. And, and, and so the, the idea behind the, this concept of the Anthropocene is really talking about the role that human beings play in these current times and how we have gone off road. We have kind of lost ourselves on that pursuit of knowledge on that pursuit of understanding the living world. But now it's also an invitation and a blessing. It's a gift for us to really see the, the, the beauty the, the, that we are part of the natural world. We are part of the living world and that we are, we are capable of creating, we are capable of healing, we are capable of mending our broken relationships with the natural world. We are capable of sharing, we are capable of having a great time. Um, we are capable of so many things, but, but, but then it's almost like we need to be sick and we need to really fall before we are able to kind of rise up. And so, so, so I think the song is in a nutshell really uh, an invitation for us to really see within indigenous wisdom, there is, there is a lot of knowledge that we can access, that we can remember that if you look back at the uh, English people behind you have the Celtic civilization that were also devoted to uh, goddess, to the respect of Mother Earth. If you look at the, any tradition around the world, they all were connected to the earth, they were all felt connected with the stars, with the sun. And so it's really saying, hey, this is, we're all under this one sun and uh, let's try to work things out. Let's really embrace this challenge and, and live this human life beautifully. Yeah, beautiful. The, when it comes to the bridge of this song, this is the most entrancing part is the, and the I need come back and the sewa come back. That rhythm section, that whole verse there, 
basically is is talking about. And you could feel that. And I would say hope, Nick. I would say this is actually happening now. We just need to grasp it, to hold it, because it's here now. It's not something in the future. It's here now. So when I heard that, I'm like, oh, this, this has to be played more than just once. You embed it with the elder brother, that wisdom that you were talking about. All that is in, is encased, enveloped within remembering the old ways, as you say. We all had that way one time, but now there's only certain few, few people who own that. I mean, who who have that. I'm saying that, you know, there, there may be 340 million indigenous peoples around the world. A lot of people say we're indigenous to the earth, but very few people are living indigenously, you see. So when something like a pipeline shows up or, you know, where's your indigenous to show up? Besides that, it's just lip service. But this song is talking about the spirit of indigenous indigeneity. Yeah, and I think that, as you were saying, that verse of Aini is reciprocity in Quechua. Sewa uh, and Ea come from, Ea come from like the ancient Gaelic, and Sewa is also like a Kogi word. So it's really, and then the rivers come back. It's, it's saying, we have to do this now. We, we, we are the ones who have to do this work. We are the ones who have to pay back our debt. We have to give back to Mother Nature. We have to uh, do reparations with the people we enslave. We have to really uh, heal the wound. It's not, not, not gonna, no, nobody else is going to do it for us. We, we have this invitation to work alongside nature, work alongside the living world, and, and really change things. We don't have to live in, in a state of panic. We can live, we can enjoy uh, a feeling of um, joy and uh, happiness with the living world. We can, we can marvel at, at the beauty of the natural world. And, and, and so that part of the song is really like a, an invitation to say, everything is coming back. Everything is returning. The, the wheel of life is suddenly uh, moving in the right direction. We we are doing this right now. And it's, and it's a question of focusing our attention, right? If we, if we shift away, if we reclaim our attention and if we focus on all the amazing projects and things and people doing great things around the world, there's so much good, goodness happening at the same time. So many good things. So one one thing about this new release that you, you sent to me, Begin Again, that not does that necessarily mean we have to go back to the same drawing board, tethered to the same old ideas about how to save the earth, but yet the Wake Up Now uh, album that contains in the Anthropocene is actually about an ongoing continuance, or or actually I, I felt like it was acknowledging the continuum that's already there. We didn't have to go back anywhere. We just had to remember remember where we are in the Anthropocene, which is, again, the, the phrase, the catchphrase. And I really think about this because it, it helps me to think that there's music like this that comes out that is not taking like a hard rock and head, head, head banging rock and roll song that you just go out to get a thrill from. This is this sets within people, you know, and I think that that's the seed. It's a song of seed, a seeding song to to, as you say, wake up, but also maybe not go back to that same drawing board. What do you think about that? Because that drawing board is kind of tossed out now. I think it's just this sense of 
not necessarily going back to the drawing board, like us going back kind of like to square one, but really I think begin again is, is really an invitation about, yeah, as, as you were saying, it's a continuum, it's the interdependence, right? It's the sense of like, uh, no matter how stupid we are, <laughs> this, yeah. this planet and this universe is always going to be uh, glamorous and, 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 and fantastic. Um, one one journalist uh, was talking about Nick's work in uh, one one journalist in LA, and, and she was saying, "This is not uh, protest songs. It's not protest music, but protection. Hmm. It's about protection. It's about hmm. the sense of like uh, protecting life and uh, honoring." Yeah. And so I think Begin Again was was born uh, just before lockdown, and the song was also. Yeah, a sense of as soon as, as we realize that the pain and the joy and the fear and the hope, they kind of belong together and the sense of, and, and it talks a lot about the ancestors. And I think um, for, for, for white people, um, we're we, we very cut off. There's a sense of like white people are very cut off of their ancestry. I was, I was recently in Chile visiting my family and I was saying, I've been in sweat lodges in, in the UK where people are asked, hey, can you share the name of your of your grandparents? And people say, I didn't meet my grandmother. I don't know her name. I, I never learned the name of my grandfather. And that's really sad, mm. right? So I think in, in, in the West uh, and amongst white people, this sense of like, and I think Begin Again really talks about this sense of... Uh, Mary, this uh, Nick's grandmother, and the sense of like, but she's also in the river, and she's also in the mountains, and she's also like part of this continuum. And I think the sense of like, uh, we don't have to be so stuck in the sense of with the crisis, we can we can kind of turn the page and say, okay, we are in this big crisis, but now we're gonna turn the page, and we're gonna we're gonna start again, we're gonna start anew. And then we're gonna we're gonna change. We're gonna do things differently. Mm. And uh, and I think the sense of like contextualizing things because I think begin again also talks about I'm in the city and I'm in the field. I am like uh, in a way this sense of uh, uh, intelligence, consciousness, the sense that there's a continuum of intelligence all around us. It's not just us who who, who are intelligent beings, but a rock can be a, an intelligence. The ocean can be a, some sort of intelligence. Stars can be some sort of intelligence. For us to really start to open up our intelligence, our perception, mm. and to really see that we are going forward, we are evolving into different technologies, into the sense of we can learn from the whale song. We can learn from the from listening to the wind. We can learn from these things that our ancestors have talked about for a long time, but we have kind of like overlooked for some reason. Mm. Felipe Iveros, I'd like to thank you for being on First Voices this short time. I'm looking forward to uh, doing an interview with you and Nick Mulvey in the future. Thank you for being here. Felipe Iveros is one of the... Um, co-writers of In the Anthropocene, who is also a researcher independently, strategist and consultant specializing in campaigning, program design and fundraising. Any last words, Felipe? No, thank you so much for listening and, and everyone and for having us here. And just yeah, looking forward to, to, to being here again. Thank you so much.